how often does your son call you a narc for not being cool? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is, and, and um, there was another podcast where they reenacted uh, one of the scenarios that Kevin and I were on. And, you know, in that we acknowledged that drug use was something that took place. And he was like, I knew it. You said, but I knew it. I knew it. More Wiser Podcast. Pamela Barnum, Undercover Officer. So Pamela, I want to start by going deep undercover with you right now. So I want to go four months into, let's say, an eight-month assignment. And you've just had a long weekend. You had multiple buys from high-level drug dealers. But it's Tuesday or it's Wednesday. You wake up and you're in that fog that everybody kind of feels right as they, you know, they start waking up. How quick after you wake up do you realize, oh, I'm undercover. I'm not regular Pamela. I'm undercover Pamela. Or is it just ingrained in you that as soon as you wake up, you're like, oh, I'm in it right now? Oh, it's definitely ingrained because it's as soon as you're in that location, all those signals are telling you. So I was never confused. If anything, now that I travel around to speak, I wake up in different hotels all the time and that fog has to to clear. But in the time of working undercover, I've never had that issue because you're in the same location for months at a time so it's it's home so it does actually start to feel like your home even though it's a highly cultivated space i mean do you go in there with like a a drug buying graphic designer and kind of look at like hey this couch is too nice i feel like we would have one with like cigarette stains and burns in it or if only it were that glamorous. It's a bunch of leftover stuff that other guys have used on projects or that you get at the Goodwill or you brought from home. Uh, there's really, it's it's pretty, it's like a hodgepodge. Imagine your first year university or college and you have, you know, aunt and uncle leftover sofa and so-and-so's uh, end tables, et cetera. And that's what you're putting in together. Okay. So, it, and the onus is really on you then to make that space believable, right? I, absolutely. It has to be authentic to who you are. You know, you ha- only have so many things to choose from. It's definitely not, uh, it's not like you're on a, an episode of HGTV where you're going to the home stagers and you get to pick things. It's pretty limited and you make it your own. You set up photographs around, you have some things that reflect whatever that background story is that you've already prepped and you make all of that work together. I'd love to say that there's a ton of thought that goes into that and it's this magic system, but really it isn't. It's pretty simple and really low key. So I have a lot more questions about the actual space and when you're undercover, but I want to start before all of that. So you said, you know, your character and you, you know, you're coming up with it. I mean, is it as simple as you sit down with a pen and paper and you go, you know, these are the parts of Pamela that I'm going to keep. These are the ones I'm going to change or alter or what's the process like? No, everything is exactly the same as to who you are. Now, clearly, you don't share that you're an undercover police officer, but a lot of the things from your background, you keep the same, your interests, the things that annoy you, the things you really like, all of that is really who you are. You can't change that at its core because you have so many other things to remember and think about and trying to recall what the stories that you've laid out as far as the drug world goes, you don't want to change a lot about who you are as a person. So you remain true and authentic to that person. Is your name still your name? 
Well, the first name usually is. I would say most undercovers keep their first name, and there's a reason for that. So if you're out and someone calls your name, they call, hey, Joe, but you've changed your name to Jack, and they call, hey, Jack, you know, you've spent 30, 40, however many years listening to Joe, you don't automatically turn. So keeping your first name consistent or a variation of it is is pretty important. It's just one less thing to remember. Now, your last name you choose when you first get into the unit because they have to get all of your ID, you know, your social, your driver's license, your history, all of those things. So that if anyone does go into um, the DMV, so to speak, and does a history on you because, you know, people, drug dealers have people working all over the place. They, you need to have a legitimate history that can be checked out. And so you, you choose your last name. It's a, it's a, you know, challenging process. People have, I remember working with guys, some would pick their last name based on, you know, their mother's maiden name, or maybe it was the first person they ever arrested, or it was a crush they had in grade school. You know, there's a million different reasons. I, um, I chose my uh, surname based on a, you know, a comedy about a crazy family. And so I picked that last name. Okay. It just reminded me of my family. Oh, what was it? Adams, like the Adams family. Oh, nice. Okay. Pamela Adams, massive mm-hmm. drug buyer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it, you brought up a good point that drug dealers will do their due diligence. And I have to imagine today versus even like 15 years ago, it's got to be so much harder because of your digital footprint. I mean, how are they scrubbing that for officers now so you don't get found out? Well, I spoke to um, a group of a couple hundred undercover officers last fall in the United States. And, it, you know, we talked about that. I did my presentation afterward, of course, you're chit-chatting with people. And, and I said, I can't even imagine what that would be like now. And, and it's changed a lot. I can't give away anything um, that, that I shouldn't. But it, it has brought a whole new set of challenges. When I first started working undercover, there was no social media. So you weren't going to have a Facebook or Instagram picture of you with a bunch of people that now was being shared everywhere. And it's not like you're bringing out your Polaroid or your camera and getting photos developed all the time. Drug dealers don't want their picture taken either. So that was great, that anonymity that existed then we have pictures. I have pictures from back then. I look through them and, you know, brings back some different memories, et cetera. But it's a lot more challenging now. And the type of deep undercover work I did is very, it's changed. It's a lot, um, it's a lot more difficult. I really feel for officers now, especially, you know, back in the day, heroin, crack, et cetera. That's one thing. But fentanyl is a completely new ball game and the safety issues that go with that just even contact with it are mind-boggling so that type of work where you're living breathing eating 24 7 is incredibly rare now and back to the name thing because you said you know someone calls out your name and you got to answer to it right but what if you're like at the grocery store and you see somebody you went to grade school with, like, I mean, or are you in areas where you know nobody? So the chances of that are zero. You're in areas where you have zero background. So the chances are very, very limited. And, you know, you can be in a big city and you never know someone that, you know, a cousin or somebody is shopping at a mall and you happen to be there at a restaurant or something. Um, you know, good close friends and family always knew that unless I made contact with them first, they should act like they don't, know who I am. Oh, interesting. And, but you know, you can use that to your advantage too. You don't want to talk to your 
cousin Sally, and you just pretend like you're working <laughs> and you don't have to talk to them. So, um, but you know, people who don't see you that often, it never happened to me. So I can't speak to that experience. And uh, it would definitely put the project in, in jeopardy. I think if somebody saw you and they knew you from your previous life, it could be a challenge. So hopefully you see them first and you can get out of the way. Now, when you're out doing, I'll call them the mundane activities, like like buying milk, right? But drug dealers mm-hmm. have to eat too. So there's a chance you run into them. So every time you leave the house, the apartment, are you are you in undercover mode? Like 100%. 100% every single 100%. time. Okay. So for me, if I went out, would I would I cultivate like do I have a certain scent that I wear that I think epitomizes like a like a drug buyer or how I guess what's a nuance to your characters that you think most people wouldn't understand or or think that you actually took the time to, you know, fine tune? Yeah, you know, I wish it was that Hollywood that we put all of that into it, but like I said, you are essentially you at your core dressed in character for that situation. Clearly, I'm not going to dress like I'm going to court or like I'm going, I was in law school um, for part of the time I worked undercover. So I would, I would dress slightly differently, but for the most part, jeans and t-shirts and you were just who you were when you most, I would say 90% of your job is the mundane. You're hanging out at a bar, making small talk. Maybe you don't make any buys. You're just getting to know people or you're at the garage with your vehicle, getting it checked out. Or like you said, grocery shopping, you're at the laundromat doing your laundry, all of these things. You're just who you are. And when you meet the people that you've uh, engaged with in the drug world, then you just talk as though, you know, if you meet someone that you work with, you're probably going to make some small talk about what's going on at work. And the drug world isn't really any different. You're just talking about, you know, um, things that have happened or parties that you're going to go to or people that you'd like to meet or the band that you just saw that you liked, uh, the different clubs you're going to. It's, it's pretty basic and it is mundane. I think that's, that's the word that people don't normally attach to undercover work, but there is a lot of that. And then of course there's a huge administrative component. You know, it's not only that you're living and presenting this person who is a drug buyer or an upper mid or low level drug dealer, depending on the project, you also then have to go to your safe house where you keep all of your notebooks and your guns and your drugs, do your notes. Because if I'm buying drugs from you, like, well, Joe was wearing a gray sweatshirt and has dark eyes and a mustache. You know, I can't make notes right while I'm standing there with you, but I have to remember all of this at the end of the night, write it all down and keep it in that safe off-site place because, you know, projects are going months at a time and court is not likely to happen until, you know, possibly a year or more later. By then you've already moved on. So to, re- to remember all of these things, you have to take very detailed notes. So much so that, you know, I paid with seven $20 bills and one fifty, and I took it from this pocket and he wow. had the drugs here. It's very specific and time consuming. And then you have to record all of your expenses. If you're out at a restaurant, you're out at a bar, you made a drug purchase, all the things that you're spending the government's money on. It's like you're, you're a note taker, a bookkeeper, um, you know, 
all of these different things are a part of your role as an undercover officer. I wish it was just like on TV where you go in and you buy some drugs and they kick the door and you're the, you know, you're it, you're all that. It's, it's not really. Way different. Okay. Way different. Way different. So the goal ultimately is you want to bring justice to people who are selling drugs. And so, um, you know, and you need to build the trust with them in that rapport. Mm-hmm. And I know you're from Canada, so I have to imagine you've fished before. And you know, when you're fishing and you think you have a bite on the line, you kind of jerk it a little bit, right? You want to set the hook. You want to make sure I got something, right? You felt you felt something on your line. Is there an analogous thing in your role as an undercover officer where you go, I think I'm in, but I'm not quite sure. I have a go-to saying or something I'll do with my body language to ensure that I'm not stepping into something that I'm not quite ready for? Well, I've never fished or hunted, believe it or not, but uh, I do. I do get the analogy for sure. And it, we have you have target lists, so it's not again. You know, we think that undercovers just show up in a town where there's drugs, and then they just start random virtue testing people. That's unethical. You have a list of people that are known or suspected as drug dealers based on intel that you've received or surveillance, etc. And you try to put yourself in positions where you're going to meet those people. And then you spend a long time just being seen, being out. You're not asking for drugs. You're not doing anything that would make you look suspicious, especially since you're brand new in town. There's nothing that screams narc like being in town the first night, heading to the bar and start hitting people up for dope. Um, it, it just doesn't work like that. So you you take a while. You get to know people. because. Clearly, you want to make sure you're you're spending your time on the right people, that you're not just turning, you know, somebody into a drug dealer by saying, hey, you know, I'd really like X, Y, Z. And because they like you, they go out of their way to try to make that happen for you. That's not a drug dealer. That's probably dozens of people that are out there right now doing different things. We're looking for the people who actually, this is their enterprise. This is what they do. This is who, who they are, how they make their money. We're looking for people because, you know, violence uh, is a huge part of the drug world. So there's a lot more to it than just making quick little buys, um, depending on the project, clearly. Now, in one of your TED Talks, you you recall a story of a gentleman, a large fellow in a, in a kitchen. It's very packed. Um, a situation escalates, he pulls a knife on someone and then you yell out something very witty. It's, I think it's something from Crocodile Dundee. That ages me, but yes, that was the movie at the time. (laughs) Yes. And when I heard that, I thought, you know, clearly you had enough confidence in the, the trust you had built with those individuals that you could shout that out and not, you know, put yourself on the line too. What, what was it in your head in that moment where you thought, Oh, I, I could actually say a funny line here and I won't get, um, you know, I won't get escorted out. I, I think I I'm actually okay to do this. Like how, how are you judging that level of trust with these very dangerous people? I think it, that particular scenario would have been more luck than anything else because I didn't know anyone in that house except the drug dealer that I'd come with, who was the target of, of the knife up against the throat. I I didn't know anybody else there. And here I am, I'm unarmed. I'm in this house packed with people that I don't know. And this enormous guy is there. And so that line just came to my, you know, when you see this big knife and that movie line, now that's a knife, everybody heard it. 
it just came into my mind. I had no other options. My back was, you know, literally against the wall. I had nowhere to go. And what was going to happen was going to happen. And I think I just tried to alleviate the situation, which I think that's definitely one of the things. There's a lot of downside to being a woman working undercover. But one of the upsides can oftentimes be that you're not seen as a threat. You're not seen as someone who wants to engage in a confrontation. So de-escalating scenarios, especially when it's a surprising comment to come out, um, worked for me more than once. So I use that, uh, try to have fun, try to, you know, de-escalate. And and I'm fortunate that most times it worked out. Are there certain personalities though, that would lend themselves to this type of work than others? Because I I'm thinking about that line. It was it was funny in the moment. It was witty and it worked. But I can't imagine like a very silly, off the walls, always cracking jokes type of person would do well in this environment. Or or truly, does it just run? It it could run the you know the spectrum as to what type of person you could embody. You know, I think I've tried to think of all the different things that make successful undercover officers successful because there's their personalities are as varied as any other profession even more so i think but the one trait that stood out to me in the most successful drug officers the ones who could buy quantities of drugs the ones who you know made the most connections that they never saw themselves as us versus them they always saw people as people and they were just doing a different job at a different time and you know, long before the language of Brene Brown came out, I think we would recognize that everyone's doing the best they can in the moment. Clear. Were there people who were just pure evil? Absolutely. But they're far and few between. The majority are people who are making choices, doing things based on either what life had presented in front of them, what they saw from their parents or their neighborhoods or their surroundings. And they were doing the best they could in bad situations often too. So if you just saw people as human beings without attaching labels, drug dealer, cop, doctor, mom, whatever it is, because sometimes those people are all one and the same, then you did a much better job. The people who saw others as different from or less than couldn't buy an aspirin in a drugstore. So you had to really like people. I think that would be the trait. You just like people. And I have to imagine that translates into real life as well. I I would suspect if you're good at gaining friends and influencing people in real life, you would, if you were an officer undercover, you would have those same skills and it would probably work there as well. Oh, absolutely. And a lot of them are really extroverted. You know, I ended up marrying... Um, someone I met working undercover. He was a, a, my undercover drug partner, not a drug dealer. But he's. Inc- I'm very introverted, and I can I can be extroverted when I need to be. But then when I'm out of that scenario, I'm I'm really content with my own company or reading and doing those different types of things. My husband Kevin is incredibly extroverted. Like he'll walk into a room and everybody knows him within a couple of minutes, and he's he meets you know. This person's my new best friend. This person over here, I love this guy. And just complete opposite personalities. And then I've worked with other guys who are a little bit more quiet, 
Um, but that extroversion uh, also helps a lot because you want to draw some attention to yourself. You want people to see you. They want to get to know you. You want to be fun. Um, that I would say that that's one of the traits as well. Now, I'm happy you brought up your husband because it's an interesting story. And for folks who don't know, I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest. You two met undercover. You knew of each other, but you weren't close. So I'm going to call you essentially strangers. Correct. And you're now playing husband and wife. You know, you're in love. You've been together for years. When you first meet in the apartment and you're now pronounced husband and wife undercover, what was that first four hours like? I mean, are you going through case notes right away or are you just kind of trying to build rapport and, and meet the actual other person? Well, the first time we met was at a golf tournament, a charity golf tournament that the drug unit put on. They closed down this golf course. And then uh, my boss told me, okay, you're going to go meet your husband. And I had heard of Kevin because he had a lot more experience and he had just come off of another long-term project. And he's, you know, he's this crazy guy with hair, you know, down his back and just, he was just, you know, crazy. And so I meet him and I'm thinking, man, I got to work with this guy for the next you know, 10 months. And he, he was nice, but he was off the charts. Like he was driving his golf cart around, chasing people, hitting balls at people, like just, you know, outside of my comfort zone. And then we show up in this town together and we have to find our undercover apartment with our, our fake names and our backgrounds, et cetera. And just getting to know him, he was just so on all the time. I thought this, this is never going to work out. Like, and I was not attracted to him in the least. And he'll tell you, he was not attracted to me in the least. There was no really attraction there because he saw me as sort of square and boring, you know, I'm in law school. And, and as the months go on, you get to know someone cause you're living with them. And, uh, we started to realize we had a lot more in common. And then of course, by the end of the project, we decide we're actually going to get together. And that was more than 20 years ago. And we, we still have a partnership in our business and we have a great son. So I, but if you would set us up on a blind date, I, we probably wouldn't have lasted past that first date. Um, it just wouldn't have worked. We had to, you know, work through all that other stuff. So now before you two are close and kind of in a relationship in those first few months, what would you say the percentage of discussion topic is in the house? Is it always you're talking shop? Is it ever you leave the undercover aside for a second, talk about real life? Yeah, I would say majority would be talking shop. But of course, you know, we'd have a couple of days off. So we worked always weekends. And I was in law school at the time. So I tried to take um, Tuesday, Thursdays off. I'd wake up Tuesday morning, I went to law school, you know, five or six hour drive away. I would drive, go to my, as many classes as I could, stay in my house, get up, go to classes in the morning, and then drive back to our undercover apartment. And so we would talk a little bit about that. And Kevin was looking into uh, being a part of the canine unit. He was doing emergency response stuff that he thought, you know, he was getting ready to transition out of the drug unit. So, and we would talk about our friends, our family, where we grew up all of those types of things. Cause you're literally, uh, aside from sleeping, you are 24 seven with this person. 
hey, real quick, sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to say thank you to everybody for all the support since starting this podcast. I really do appreciate it. And if you're looking for a way to support the show, you don't need to buy anything. I'm not asking you to do anything out of the ordinary. Just tell a friend. Just tell a friend that, hey, I found this new podcast where Joe spends hours researching every guest because he really does respect your time and want it to be worthwhile. So if you're looking to help me out, you could make my week by just telling someone about the show. That's it. All right, let's get back to it. Now, that is impressive that you were going to law school and undercover. And I guess take me through the drive back from law school back to being undercover. I mean, what's the playlist like to get you back in the headspace to, to go into that undercover world again? Well, there literally was a playlist. It was back in the day, you know, cassette tapes and that type of thing. So Kevin was always really into personal growth, personal development kind of stuff. Like he's listening to CDs and or tapes and books and all this type of thing. And so he got me into some of this. So I would listen to some on my way back, like, you know, really motivating stuff. Or I would just, you know, listen to some music. Sometimes we'd talk on the phone a little bit because... Uh, he may have gotten a, a page or a call from one of the dealers while we're, you know, on our day off, or I may have had a discussion with someone. So we're trying to brief each other um, before we meet back up, because usually when we hit the ground, we hit the ground running. We had to be somewhere or going to talk to somebody, or we're showing up at our safe house with our, our cover team, our investigative team to get briefings from them because they've been doing surveillance so they know so-and-so has just met with so-and-so or they have a confidential informant telling them that something's coming into town or these different things are happening. So you're getting a lot of briefing as well um, as you get back into it. But it wasn't really hard to, to make the switch. I actually hid some of my textbooks in the false ceiling in the closet in the apartment. There was like the little attic thing and Kevin moved it and I could hide my books up in there. Um, Cause I'd have to, you know, I had assignments, I had exams and things. So I'd have to, I missed the majority of my classes. So I'd really have to pay attention with notes that I had from other students or textbooks. So that I, when I went back, I was ready to go. Wow. Um, I want to crank up the heat a little bit. So that's going back to undercover, but now let's say you're going to walk out the door and you're, we're at the eight month mark and it's like a nine month assignment how are you getting in the headspace to go meet like a high level drug dealer? I mean, this is like the culmination. Was there a song that you would play before you went or was it just silence and you're just all in your own head? I would say sometimes it was a, a mix. I, you know, you'd be with somebody or a couple of times if you're working alone, I think more silence for me, just really getting in that space to be ready to connect. And, you know, you had to do your best to take the pressure off because you've dealt hopefully with whoever you're going to go meet for that next buy, or they've been the ones to introduce you up the, up the chain, so to speak. And you're just, the more relaxed you can be and the more in that moment and aware, I think situational awareness was really important. That's, you know, where experience um, meets up with all these other things that are happening around you just to be aware of those little shifts and changes that can mean the difference between success and safety versus failure and hurt. What would you say is the delta between the last time you were undercover and you had that moment versus your level of nerves and maybe, I don't know, fright? 
from the first time you did it. Can, could you quantify the difference there, like zero to a hundred? Yeah, it, I don't know if I can quantify the difference, but I can give you an example of what that's like. So the very first time I ever went skydiving, I wasn't that afraid because I had no idea what to expect. So, oh. and I was really anxious to get out of the plane because I was the, the lightest person. I was the last person. So these other guys are jumping out and the plane stops and drops and the guy goes out and then it goes back up and then does it again. And by the time it was my turn, I was just anxious and ready to do it. So that would be how I would describe my first, uh, my first undercover experience. And then the last where you have a lot more experience and you know what to expect. Sometimes I think you think about what could go wrong a little bit more intensely because you've seen it, you've heard about it, it's happened to someone, or now there's new things that are going on. So I think, you know, the gift of ignorance can sometimes be very helpful. You, you also said something interesting earlier, which was that you worked the weekends and during the week you could go to school, which I have down here. Did you get PTO? I mean, like if a wedding pops up in real life, are you just like sending a card? I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm at a, you know, a rundown bar this weekend. What's that like for an undercover officer in time away? Time away is challenging. And the, and the reason is because you have a team. It's not just all about you. So you have to keep in mind the, you know clearly the dealers and where you want to be in that project is primary. And then you have a cover team that's covering you and they have lives and things that happen and investigative teams and overtime restrictions and government uh, changing priorities, etc. So I would say your own personal things, clearly you could get that time, but you become so invested in that project. I, I'm, I took a little bit of time off, I think three days off when my sister got married, but aside, and even then I wheeled in late for whatever we were supposed to be doing and I left um, early the next day. I, you really, it becomes so important to you because you're, that's your life, you're living it. and. You don't want to risk all of those months and money and time and investment on everyone, not only you, um, for something. But I, I knew when I would have exams, for example, so I cleared it with my boss long before because, you know, when exam week is happening. Uh, and the rest of it, I just managed. And I met with the dean of my, my law school because I got called into his office once because I had missed so many classes, like a lot, most classes. And he reminded me, he called, he didn't know what I did for a living. And he said, you know, this is law school. This isn't some certificate course you're getting. You know, you really, we need you to show up. And so I confided in him what my job was. And instantly he shifted. He's like, no problem. We'll make it work for you. You tell us what you need. The school was very accommodating. He didn't share that information with anyone. But I didn't have any more. I had pretty smooth sailing for the next a few years in law school. Now you mention a cover team and I forget the name of the other team. So investigatives team. Yeah. It kind of feels like you're the actor and you have everybody else on set helping you out. What what does a cover team do? I, I can't say I've seen those on movies before. Or maybe they, I have. They're also uh they're not necessarily what you would call undercover because they're not dealing usually directly with other citizens and people, but they're in the background wearing plain clothes, you know, they dress like we dress. They're driving undercover cars and they might come, if I'm working by myself, for example, I might have a couple of cover guys walk into the bar 30 minutes before I'm supposed to get there and they can sit 
and, you know, have their beer in front of them and be able to watch what's happening. Or they're parked down the road so that they can see when I come and when I go and who I'm going to meet with. It's it's really primarily officer safety is the number one priority. And also corroborating evidence is important uh, for them to, you know, record times and see things. Because like I mentioned, I might be hours and I started at 8 p.m. It's now three in the morning. Lots has happened. I can't say exactly because I'm not checking my watch every five minutes to see, and I'd have nowhere to write it down. So they're, they're watching and making uh, records of when those types of scenarios are happening as well. And it's great to know that they're run up. There are clearly times and places where you, they can't be because the gathering is so small or the location is not conducive for good surveillance, but you try to avoid those if, if possible. So I think that might answer some of this question, which is how often you're tested, like in the movies, like, oh, can we trust you? You have to commit an egregious crime. I mean, is that when the cover team steps in or are you kind of on your own that you got to either talk your way out of it or are you allowed to commit a crime sometimes? Well, crimes are definitely a no-go. Um, you can set things up that look like you're committing a crime. So usually you'll have, uh, you know, for example as an undercover, you can't deal drugs. You can't just get drugs and then go deal them to somebody else. You, you would set up another undercover officer that is from another area that no one's ever seen. They see you doing deals. They see you doing things. So hopefully you've got lead time or you can sense things, but you know, there are definitely times where you have to manage on the fly. And again, officer safety and protection of the project are primary. So, um, you know, some things happen and you move forward. Fortunately, I was never in a Donnie Brasco kind of situation, um, which, you know, it's one of my all-time favorite movies for sure. But, uh, yeah, that, that kind of scenario never presented itself to me. So then piggybacking off of that, I also think of, you know, you're buying drugs. What if they're adamant that you do them with them? And I have to imagine the skill set to talk your way out of that is relevant in real life too. I mean, how would you go about, do, did it ever happen? And how would you go about talking your way out? Because obviously you can't do drugs. Definitely happens. You, you learn simulation techniques for certain drugs, which can be helpful. And there are certain things, again, that I won't disclose here that you can do um, that give the appearance of following through. But then, you know, there are other times where it's, it's too dangerous not to, which is, again, I'll come back to that initial thing. I said, thank goodness that, you know, fentanyl and those types of instant kill you drugs were not um, as much a part of the world back then. So uh, I'll leave it at that. So Pamela, I won't put you on the spot, but is it ever in the realm of a cop's job to do a drug if there's no other way around it to maintain their cover? Officially, no. <laughs> Great answer. Okay. Okay. Understood. Moving on. Um, so, well, I guess, did your cover ever get blown? Never. Not one time and not, wow. not ever a suspicion of it. Okay. And then, so you probably don't have any nightmares about that, but do you have any recurring nightmares from your time undercover? Like, uh, oh, I forgot my name. I forgot to do this thing. Is there any sort of dream that you can't quite escape? 
No, you know, I, I would say I'm, I'm very fortunate. I don't have any sort of PTSD around any scenarios because luckily they all, you know, no matter what was happening, things eventually worked themselves out. And uh, I learned so much. And I, I think you ignore, especially when, you know, before you become a parent or you're younger, you're in your 20s, early, mid 30s, which is when I was doing this work, you see yourself as invincible, as nothing can happen, because that's your mindset at that age. And I'm glad, you know, if I was doing it now in my 50s, I could, I don't think I'd be successful at all, because I'd be, you know, thinking about all these things that can happen and maybe slipping up, because I'm overthinking things. When you're in that moment, and you're living that life, I, I didn't overthink it. And fortunately, I worked with great people. There were very few people that I ever worked with that I uh, would say I didn't trust that there were some, but they again were far and few in between. And um, I, w- I was really lucky. I started in a great unit. I finished in a great unit, and uh, I worked with amazing people. Now, you spent a lot of time undercover, and I'm going to ask a very silly question. But can you tell if someone in real life, just in your day to day, is a drug dealer, or I mean, besides them looking like they do drugs, or is it pretty easy for folks to fly under the radar? Well, I'm sure I miss lots of them, but I'll give you another quick example. Um, my family and I moved into a small little ski town, and we we didn't know a soul here. We, we moved because our son's a ski racer and wanted to ski, and so we were fortunate enough to be able to move this little ski town. Didn't know a soul. We were getting bagels one evening, and we're sitting at this bagel shop, and we see this other place across the way. And the traffic's coming and we see a guy looking out the window and then he does this and, you know, gives a signal and then another guy comes in, another guy comes in and, and Kevin and I are like, okay, this is, you know, the things are lining up here that we're, we could probably go across the street and buy some drugs if we, if we wanted to. So I went in and ordered, it was another food place. So a couple of days later I go in and I could hear the one guy talking on the phone using codes that I recognized and so we we met up with the um, reach out to a local officer and and shared our background experience. And it turns out that that was uh, there was you know uh, a lot motorcycle gang had just taken over and was selling um, cocaine out of that shop. And so you do see things, you can see things, and it's just experience. It's like any other career. If that is something that you lived with and experienced, it's a lot easier to see some of those signals that, you know, my, my friend or my sister would completely be shocked or ignored. You know, they wouldn't, they wouldn't think of that at all. So um, you can imagine how pleased my teenage son is that he has these two parents. Um, I'm his- glad you said that because I have a question here. How often does your son call you a narc for not being cool? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing is, and, and um, there was another podcast where they reenacted uh, one of the scenarios that Kevin and I were on. And they did this great job and, and it was wonderful. And so our son, we said to our son, you should listen to it. And he's like, oh, you guys are... You're, you think you're cool, but you're so boring. You know, you're not. <laughs> so he listened to it. And, you know, in that we acknowledged that drug use was something that took place. And he was like, I knew it. 
you said, but I knew it. I knew it. And yeah, so he, his ski coach last year was kind of funny. And he's the one who shared the story with us because our son told us about it. He said, you know, we were driving up to a ski race and they were in the parking lot. We were going to, to go pick him up. And all the kids are laughing and patting him on the back. And everyone seems to be laughing at a joke. And we didn't know what it was. When he got into the vehicle, he said, you know, the ski coach said, hey, how does it feel to know that your parents are cooler than you are? And his, <laughs> his friends. Awesome. So, of course, it is heating him up. But, uh, yeah, we have some fun with that. Now, what what lessons from both of your times undercover are you sharing with your son to make him more equipped? And which ones are you going, oh, we're going to leave that when ignorance is bliss when it comes to that? Well, now that he's 19, we, everything's on the table. So we share everything. And we, we shared sort of watered down versions ever since he was old enough to go and, you know, go to a party or do things. So even in his late te- his teens and, and so on, we would share things. And, and now, again, like I said, it's much more dangerous for kids. So, you know, for any parents out there that have teens, I would really encourage you to be very, very open. We always said to him, look, if you're going to drink, you're going to drink. We don't think you should, but that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen. We're not naive, but never have anything that you personally did not bring with you. Don't eat anything or take anything that you personally didn't bring with you because now it is so dangerous. And I was speaking with um, a, an acquaintance of mine who works at the um, at a place at a rehabilitation uh, place close by and they do a lot of drug counseling. And she said, you know, there's the majority of cocaine that they are getting tested now, it is laced with fentanyl. And the the overdose rates, I think, you know, in the United States and in Canada is alarming. And it's not just fun and games, you know, getting high, doing, you know, whatever with your friends. It, it can be life or death now. And we don't try to exaggerate that or come across as though we're trying to preach at him, but just sharing that this it's a dangerous world and you can have fun and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to dumb things because that's part of being a teenager and in your early 20s, you do all these things. But at least try to remove some of the risk from that. Now, Life or death and fentanyl, this is a new thing for undercover officers to have to traverse. Put yourself in the shoes of an officer today and say someone's having an overdose. And I mean, is it within your character to save someone with some sort of, you know, um, I forget what it's called, the um, how you can prevent an overdose, Pamela? Oh, the Narcan. Yeah, Narcan. Yeah. Now, I mean, if you do that and you're putting the job in at risk, or would you call in someone from your cover team to come in and help, or how does that work? I, I think you know you revert to your basic human instincts to help people and to save people. And I would say, you know, I'd never say all police officers, just like I wouldn't say all doctors or all teachers are, you know, always choosing to do the right thing. But I would say the majority of people that go into professions that are set to help people, their human instincts to save and protect override anything else and i'm quite certain that i don't think i've ever met a police officer that wouldn't do the right thing in that moment because that's just their human nature um and i guess you just pick up the pieces and and set up the story and at that point it's probably 
they're probably looking at tearing the project down or moving on anyway, because if things start getting into that sort of zone, you, you know, the investigative team would need to make some decisions around what, what it looked like moving forward. And I think that highlights how tainted my view is of what you did from movies and TV. What is a movie out there though, that you think really does epitomize what it's like? Well, I can tell you there's one that is very, very close and it is called Rush. It's way back in the day with Jennifer Jason Lee. And it was actually written, the the book it's based on was written by Kim, I think it's Kim Wazowski, Kim something. And she was a, a female police officer in Texas and had been and recruited into drugs very early. I think she was still a recruit. I think she was just, hadn't even done any time in uniform yet. And she got put into this scenario with an experienced drug officer. They did a lot of things wrong. Uh, They actually both ended up being convicted of criminal charges. But when you see that kind of street level, uh, one of the Allman brothers was in that movie. When you see the street level, uh, the way it plays out, I I would say that that's pretty, pretty accurate. And, you know, I spoke with with Steve Steve Murphy from Narcos. We spoke at this, uh, the same conference and then we ended up getting to know one another and becoming friends. And, you know, it's funny because he was sharing where we're off, off the video talking about different things. And he said, you know, there's lots of things in the show that, of course, makes for great television, but it never happened. And I think that that's probably likely in most, most things. Because the boring parts, nobody wants to sit and watch that. They want to watch the exciting, you know, the, the Tom Cruise jumping across the roof kind of action not not the boring stuff yeah we don't want to see you by cereal exactly <laughs> exactly but yeah um, rush is a good one and i would assume 21 jump street is a bad one it's a bad <laughs> one but entertaining nonetheless so talk to me a bit about decompressing after well let me back up do you ever really decompress when you're in a job or as you're on your way home from a night out are you just on edge 24 seven? No, we definitely decompress and we would do what we call chiller nights or chiller days where um, we would go with some of the investigators or the cover team and, you know, go into a different town, go out for dinner, just have some laughs. That's all a part of it. But you know, the, the other thing is you think it's all, you, you think, imagine, uh, you imagine your first project as being glamorous, right? Where you make these drug buys and, the the undercovers like you said the little the star you know here's here's them here's the universe kind of thing and all these people working with them but the reality is that happens so let's say takedown days on a wednesday so wednesday night happens takedowns happen you do your your takedown party where you have a beer you cheers we're, we're done this was great way to go and then thursday morning you go back to your office and there's a pile of crime stoppers tips or you have to go meet and do something or you need to file your paperwork. Um, that's the job. There is nobody, once that's over, nobody cares. Now, now the next guy's doing his project or you're getting assigned to go somewhere else or do something different. And it doesn't matter anymore. You, that's done. Now you move on. And when you left, like you, you hung up your undercover boots. What was the transition like back into the real, I'm going to call it the real world. I know you were always there, but not being undercover. Well, for me, it was pretty easy because I didn't leave the drug unit until I found out I was pregnant. Um, so I was still working. And then, you know, clearly once, once I found out I was 
going to have a baby, I, I couldn't go and do that job anymore. So uh, during my, during when I was pregnant, I did, you know, I wrote search warrants. I did that sort of thing. I just didn't go on scenes. And then when I went off on maternity leave, I had finished law school and I transitioned right into uh, the prosecutor's office. So I was starting a completely new career. So for me, the excitement of, you know, being a new mom, starting a new career, it was an easier transition, I think, than if I had just, you know, left the drug unit to go into some other policing or retire. I was at, um, at a retirement of a guy who had worked undercover for many, many years and he was still trying to come back to volunteer to do for, he just wasn't ready for that part of his life to be over. And I think that happens in lots of different careers. People, you know, they leave and emotionally they're not ready for that. And the drug unit, especially if you work with great people is hard because you are living a life. You're creating these worlds. You're doing things that the people at the neighborhood barbecue cannot relate to. They don't understand that it's, they just don't, and you don't talk about it anyway, but you know, when you get together with people that have done what you do, you feel at home, you know, even all these years later, as I mentioned, when I went to speak at that conference and I got to, I was invited out to their um, dinner that night with, you know, 200 plus undercover officers. And I was, you know, I called my husband. I was like, I can't believe it. Like, it just feels like this. It feels like I never left. Nothing changed. It's that we have the same conversations. There are the same issues, the same challenges, and even the same uh, demographics. So I was the only woman in, you know, with over 90 officers in, in the drug enforcement section that I worked with that was working undercover. And I went to this conference and there were four women in the audience and only two of them worked undercover. So again, it's another one in a hundred wow. that are actually working undercover. So the more things change, the more they stay the same because there are different risk factors. And it's also not a, a career that really attracts, um, you know, you have to have some policing experience to get into the drug enforcement section. And then, you know, you're starting a family and doing things that's, that's a, unsustainable for new moms to, to do that job. And I, you know, I definitely don't want you to get a bunch of letters from people upset that I'm talking about moms versus dads, but it, it's definitely very different. I worked with all the guys in my units had kids and different things and they'd go and live different places for months at a time. And um, it's just, it's a different kind of, kind of scenario. I mean, I think the answer is going to be yes, but do you think it'd be advantageous to have more of a 50, 50 split since anybody could become addicted to drugs and then want to buy them? No, you know, I wish I could say yes, but here's the thing. The glass ceiling in the drug world is bulletproof and the Me Too movement is non-existent. So drug culture, criminal culture is still a very macho kind of culture. It is not, you don't walk into the Hells Angels and see 50% women or walk into other gangs or drug dealing organizations and women are at the top. It doesn't work like that. At least didn't in my experience and the people I talk to, it's still not that way. So what do you think it is about your personality then in particular that allowed you to infiltrate and as you call it, a bulletproof glass ceiling to kind of work your way around it? What about you, Pamela, do you think resonated with these high level drug dealers? Yeah, you know, I don't, I can't, I, I can't think of anything. I, I work with great people and I learned 
how to present myself and the right questions to ask. I think, you know, curiosity is definitely one of the skills that people who are successful um, have. And, and I was just lucky to be chosen uh, to be a part of that unit. You know, it was difficult for, for women to be included in that. And because I was an anomaly, I got used a lot in a lot of different little projects for short term type things as well, because when guys are working, you know, for months at a time, they need to have a girlfriend, so to speak, occasionally. And so I would hop in and do that. So I, I got to have a lot of experience where I worked with a lot of different people for varying periods of time. And you get to see, I had a you know front row seat to what works and what doesn't work. And then you can take that and use it. So I was really, I, I was able to use that to my advantage just to be able to have that much experience crammed into a short period of time. But I don't think there's anything special about me in particular. I think I was right place, right time, and had great mentors leading me up to that position. And your career trajectory is very interesting because like you said, you became a prosecutor after being an undercover officer. So what, I mean, when you went into a courtroom, I don't know if you did litigation, but yes, I did. when you went into, okay. So when you went into a courtroom, then did you feel like you had a secret superpower that the other attorneys couldn't, that you could read jurors or witnesses better than the average person? Uh, yes, I did. I will tell you that I think that I was fortunate that my ability to pay very close attention to not just the words that are being said, but how they're being said worked to my advantage. And understanding the background of people, because I lived in those backgrounds. So I knew what some of the messaging was or what some of the scenarios would be. And I was lucky as well because police officers would talk to me in the language that I needed to hear. They would share things with me and disclose things to me because they trusted me because I was one of one of them. So I could I learned a lot of things, but I would also pay very close attention to other counsel, to the witnesses on the stand, of course, to the jury, and you get really good when you when your safety is at issue to pay attention to when things aren't lining up. And then you get really good at paying attention because you know people are lying to you. And so you start to look at this. I wouldn't say that I am, there, there's no such thing as a superpower that you know when someone's lying or not lying. There, there's scientific ways um, that have been written about and tested that there are very, they're minuscule that you can actually um, take to the bank, but you have to use those. All of, all of this has to be used with the ability to ask questions. And to know that, okay, I've asked this question. I don't believe what your answer is because your nonverbals are telling me something different. That doesn't mean I know you're lying. It means that I know that I should ask another question or ask it a little bit differently so that I can then lead you down this trail into evidence to get to where we need to be. And that was definitely a skill set. The curiosity and the situational awareness definitely came in hand. Now, did you, while you're undercover, did you ever have to, I don't want to say play dumb, but you know, as a prosecutor, you're trying to, you know, logically, I'm going to say trip someone up for lack of a better term, but out in the real world, maybe that's not to your advantage. How often did you, did you have to mentally pump the brakes and go, okay, I'm, I'm probably in 
like the next atmosphere. Like I'm in the stratosphere and this guy's down on earth right now and I got to dumb it down. I mean, was that a common occurrence? I wouldn't say it was common, but you definitely have to be able to read the room and know where that person is and what their skill level is in communication and where you want to take them. And clearly you're not going to be cross-examining people while you're trying to work with them, but you do ask questions that they need to spell it out for you. And I would say that I did use that technique uh, on more than one occasion, and it was usually very beneficial. It's also disarming because in, in the criminal world, and I think really in human nature, one of the things that we crave is respect. When I was first uh, became a police officer, my coach officer, when I was in uniform, he told me all crimes are committed for one of three reasons only. You doesn't matter what the crime is, always one of three. And the first one is money or some variation of money, greed, etc. The next one is love or lust, whatever that dynamic is. And the third and usually the one that's at play is respect. We want to feel respected. And when we feel disrespected, especially in the criminal world, that's when things start to go sideways, violence, all sorts of different things. So demonstrating deference and respect were critical key components. And also when working with witnesses or cross-examining or dealing with judges, showing respect authentically was critically important and still is today in every sort of, I think it's the pinnacle of emotional intelligence to be able to recognize that when someone feels respected and heard and understood, they are much more likely to tell you what you want to know, to you know, take away the barriers, to let their guard down a little bit and open things up to you more. Pamela, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This has been so fun. Uh, an odd question. If someone wants to hear one of your favorite stories about your time as an undercover officer, where would you direct them? Well, you know, I speak at lots of different conferences. Hopefully they'll see me somewhere there. The The SpyCast podcast was another great one. I'm loving podcasts. So I'm, you know, huge kudos to you for taking on this enormous oh, thank you. Uh, project. And I, what I love about it too is the, the characters that you put to people. I was showing my husband were fascinated by it. So oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I would hope that uh, we get some more people listening into this podcast and you can check out other podcasts that I've I've been on and I love telling the stories. You know, I could talk all day. So I, I appreciate you inviting me. Was the spy cast the one where they kind of recounted one of your story? Okay. So that might be a good one to really get a feel for what it was like to be Pamela and Kevin. Exactly. Yeah, okay. It's a fun one. Amazing. And then other resources like a website or online presence? Well, I'm just PamelaBarnum.com. I'm on LinkedIn and uh, I'm not great on social media. I'll put that out there. I, I'd like to be, but um, people can message me or connect with me through Instagram or, or LinkedIn. And uh, hopefully I'll have a book coming out shortly and, and we'll, we'll see where we go from there. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Joe.